Greetings and welcome to our lecture in our series hosted by the Media Project and the Acton Institute in partnership with the Center for Early African Christianity and a host of other excellent organizations. Lisa Field, she is the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. And we're going to be talking about the topic of reclaiming Christianity connecting to its African roots. So we are very excited to have Lisa here with us today. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Now, first of all, tell us about the Jude 3 Project. What is that? So the Jude 3 Project is a Christian apologetics organization dedicated to helping Black Christians know what they believe and why. Uh, we started in 2014, um, and we've been on quite a journey uh, in these last few years to help uh, live out our mission and vision. And tell us about apologetics. What is apologetics for those listening who may not know? Yeah, that's a great question, because for a while, my grandmother thought I said, I'm sorry for Jesus for a living. <laughs> um, <laughs> apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. And that word um, comes from 1 Peter 3.15, when Peter instructs us to be able to give a defense for the hope that we have. And that Greek word there is apologia. So that's where uh, we get apologetics from. So it's really to give an intellectual um defense for the Christian faith. Young people, especially African-American young people are walking away from the Christian faith because they don't see themselves represented in the faith, especially with the racial tensions, uh, people think, uh, thinking through what's going on in society. And they're like, is Christianity relevant for the times? And one of the things we always point them to is early African Christian Christian history, because it shows that like the early church fathers, that they were African. And so in the words of Thomas Oden, Africa really shaped the Christian mind. And it's important for people to be able to connect to that um, um, African root so they can understand that Christianity is something relevant for the culture and it's actually shaped by Africans. When you're looking at the work that you guys do with the Jude 3 Project, what are you hearing right now? What would you say is the current condition um, in the culture right now when it comes to African-Americans and looking at their place and identity in the church? Yeah, um, I think a lot of African-Americans are questioning um, whether this faith is relevant, uh, that it affirms their identity. Um, it's been whitewashed in the West. And so it's like, you see pictures of white Jesus. When you see Bible characters, you're seeing white white people. And so you're like, do I really have a place? And so people are really thinking about going back to um, African ancestral religions, um, going to Hebrew Israelism, Kemeticism, um, just different uh, different faiths that they think validate their identity um, as Black people. So they, I understand and I empathize um, with that because of the mismanagement of Christianity in the West. And so I understand how people get to that. And so what we do is try to reframe Christianity for them and reclaim it, um, as the title says, so they'll know that this isn't a, a, a Western religion. It's um, an Eastern religion and it's deeply rooted in Africa. You hear a lot of people saying that they're spiritual versus religious. How mm -hmm. does that play out in the culture? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think uh, when people are saying they're spiritual and not religious, what they're doing is protesting against 
traditions and religious practices that they have seen be toxic or harmful. And so they're they're trying to connect spiritually, but they're trying to detach themselves from those toxic things that they may have grown up with. Uh, one thing I say often is sometimes uh, parents are praying for their children to return to church without realizing sometimes they're their greatest obstacle for their children returning to church because their children saw them spend so much time in church, but it didn't transform the way they lived at home. And so if it's like you're spending all this time in a space, but it doesn't transform your personal life, it does seem to be worthless in the minds of the generation coming behind. And so one of the things I think the uh, spiritual and not religious um, ideology is trying to hit at is trying to detach themselves from toxic practices, but also stay connected to um, a spiritual relationship with God. How do you think that white Christians can be aware of prejudice, prejudice and do a better job of standing with our brothers and sisters? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things um, is listening. I think the greatest Um, Christian apologetic uh, tool is a listening ear. And so I think when we listen and listen without being defensive, but listening and trying to understand, um, obviously everybody's experience is different, but I think the greatest tool for bridging that gap um, and understanding another person's experiences is to listen and listen intently and to also do research on the experiences that they're um, communicating and the um, disparities in society. And so I think listening and research helps so much. And then also saying, I wanna come alongside, what ways can I aid and help make this situation better for you and people that look like you? How has the politics in our country played a role in the place and discomfort that black Americans may feel in the church right now? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question because I think when you see uh, pictures uh, playing games with religion for a political agenda and people, they see that and they're saying, I don't want a religion that is more concerned about the interests of the rich and not caring about those on the margins, not caring about the, the poor and the immigrants. And so I think many people are rejecting that kind of faith and that feeds into this Western Christian narrative. This is from Paul Gladder, who's the executive director of the Media Project and executive editor of Religion Unplugged. He said, I've heard some white Christians say, my family came here in the 20th century. We had nothing to do with slavery. We've always seen it as a moral wrong. They seem to think that parts of the US, such as the South and Christian denominations, Um, more steeped in historical racism, have more work or repentance to do, though they agree that the entire country and they also have work to do. Is there any truth in this, any guidance for different geographies and regions in America? Yeah, so we, we, uh, I hear that a lot. And I think one of the things I think through um, is how we are to, scripture talks about a community And I think sometimes when we think of racism, we think of individual sin. And so while uh, a family may not have, you know, owned slaves, I think many majority culture reap the benefits of the system. And so I think thinking about it as how has, how have white Europeans benefited from systems that have been set up 
um, is a better way to think about it because it's like, I think what people are trying to articulate African-Americans, um, particularly that the system is unfair. And so the system is imbalanced and those people benefit from the system because of the color of their skin. And so while you may not have directly contributed to it, you're able to benefit from it. And so I think that's the the challenging thing to understand. Like if you think of it as individual, you you can excuse yourself. But when you think about the benefits of the system, then you understand how how you play a part in the system. And so that begins the conversation about white privilege. And so I think when people hear white privilege, their their um, their uh, walls immediately grow go up. I think one of the things we should think about is that we all, on some level, uh, have may have different types of privilege. So I always say I grew up in a black. Uh, middle-class two-parent home, right? So there's a certain level of privilege that I might have from someone who grew up in a single-parent home that is uh, grew up uh, in poverty, right? So then I take my my privilege and my experience and the things that I was exposed to and then help those who may not have been had that same exposure. So we don't have to think about privilege as such a scary word, but we figure out and evaluate where do we have privilege? How is our life better just because of our skin color, our socioeconomic condition, our family's condition? How has it been better than others? And then steward that privilege to help those who haven't had those same privileges. That is so important. That is so brilliant, Lisa. Another question. Um, some Christians in America of all ethnic backgrounds are troubled by what they say is anti-religious, anti-nuclear family and intersectionality in the Black Lives Matter movement as espoused by BLM on its website, et cetera. How do you suggest they navigate these elements as they pursue racial justice and understanding? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So I think one of the misconceptions about BLM um, is that most Black people that say Black Lives Matter are attributing it to an organization. I always tell people most people that say Black Lives Matter are just saying it because Black Lives Matter. They're not thinking about an organization. Many people don't, that say it don't even know an organization exists. The statement came first, the organization came later. So it's like people are just saying Black Lives Matter because they're historically Black lives haven't mattered in the country. And so they're not conflating it with all the other tenets that come along with the organization that was formed after the statement went viral. And so I think that's one of the things you should probably ask the person who's making the statement, like, what do you mean? Like, are you connected to the organization? And do, are you, do you believe the tenets of the organization? And nine times out of 10, the average Black person is going to say, I'm just making the statement because Black Lives Matter. And I think it's important to, to, to not conflate the two, because if you conflate the two, then you're, you're, you're able to dismiss the statement. And I don't think that helps you get any headway in your, um, in, in your desire to reconcile. And so I think understanding that is so crucial uh, when you're navigating the BLM movement and the statement Black Lives Matter. That is great. Zoli McKnight said, thank you for saying that. 
Um, Clemente Lisi in New York City has a question. In 2018, Pew Research found that African-Americans in general are more religious than whites and Latinos in the United States. Why do you think that is? Yes, I think that um, suffering um, forces you to look for uh, uh, outside power. Um, and being on the margins forces you to to look for something outside of yourself to rely on and trust in. And I think uh, privilege, prosperity, um, status makes you uh, self-reliant. Uh, you see that all through the scripture. When Israel got uh, the promise, they forgot the God of the promise. But it, And then he would send them through suffering so they would remember that they need him. And so I think that's one of the distinctions is that when you're on the margins, you usually look outside of yourself to find something to help rescue you versus when you're in a place of prosperity, um, you can get uh, proud and self-reliant, forgetting that you need something outside of yourself. You have this idea. I did this myself. Um, and so I think that's one of one of the differences. Um that we um, and why Africans, African Americans, um, might uh, rely more on spirituality than those who are not on the margins. Okay, one of our members of the Media Project, Likan, who is in Nigeria, has a question from there. He says, "Should Christianity be defined in terms of African, white, etc.? Why is it difficult to have a real unity of faith?" Yeah, that's a great question. I think for many uh, who have seen pictures of white Jesus their whole life, have uh, saw uh, images, and when they're when they read books, the theologians that they learn from are are white. I think it's important that we highlight that Christianity is not just a faith that uh, that is shaped by. Uh, white people. I think we need to highlight the collective church leaders from uh, black, white, Asian, all across the globe. So we'll know that everybody has an intricate role in this faith, um, that all nations are important to God. We see in Revelation, every um, John saw um, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so it was important for him to highlight that because he knew that the diversity of nationalities mattered to God. And if they matter to God, they should matter to us. And so I don't think that highlighting the different nations um, is an obstacle to unity. I think it helps us be unified because it shows us that we all have an importance Another question from a member of our team, Jillian Cheney. She says, I like that you mentioned the presence of white Jesus. That's been an interest of mine in studying art history and the experience of churches. If white churches start incorporating a more multicultural Christianity, what benefits and cha changes would they start to see in their community? I think, uh, I don't think that the, the change would be immediate. But I think over time, when we talk about diversifying worship, that our worship style and the songs we sing is is multicultural. You know, um, it's not just CCM, you know, it's gospel choirs because 
people are going to look at that when when people go to usually multi-ethnic churches while it may be a diversity of of nationalities in the service the service still kind of functions in a white normative way so the music is ccm uh i always i always uh joke i grew up in a a black Pentecostal tradition. So when I went to a white church for the first time, I was like, man, this is a lot of words. And the people are just on the guitar. Uh, I was like, this is so different. And so um, diversifying even the worship, even the preaching style to make it engaging for everyone, I think helps to change the tide. It's not just about taking down the pictures of white Jesus, which I think is important, but also the faces that they see preaching, are they um, a diverse group of, of individuals? Um, the worship that they see um, rendered on Sunday, is that a diverse group of individuals? Is that a diverse group of a diverse worship style? And, and also how does the leadership look? Is that diverse? Is, is the whole staff white and, um, that's that's also um, I think one of the ways we we kind of shape the narrative in our church context if we want to have a more robust um, understanding of diversity. And obviously, with the work that you're doing, um, and I think this is really resonate resonating with our members around the world. Lekan saying same thing in Nigeria. Lucy saying very good insight. There's so much one needs to know from all over the world. Um, when you see the situation right now, and, and I know that a lot of the things we've pointed out and talked about, there's a lot of challenges. We are in a challenging time, to say the least. What gives you hope and how do you feel right now? Do you feel hopeful in this time? And um, what is it really that gives you the most hope for our path forward as we seek healing in this area? Yeah, one of the things that gives me the most hope is working with students to hear them be open and to be hungry. It's like they want to believe in something. They are very passionate about justice. Um, They're passionate about making the wrongs of this world right. And that gives me hope. That zeal gives me hope. And to see them when we're speaking to them say, man, now I, I could grab onto this faith. That brings me hope because it's like, yes, there's people walking away from the faith. But when the truth is presented to them, they do gravitate to it. And so I think that makes me hopeful. It it just encourages me to present the facts and present the truth. You know, some will reject it. You know, the, the way is narrow. So many will reject it. But there are many who also are turning towards it and wanting to to believe in Jesus Christ and believe that he died and rose and they're looking into it and wanting to dive uh, into the faith and say, man, I want to get all of this stuff so I can share it with my friends. And that also encourages me when I hear uh, students at the end of our event say, man, I'm taking this to my friends. They become immediate uh, witnesses because they're like, I know if this impacted me, it's going to impact my friends as well. So that that gives me an immense amount of hope. Yes, we do a lot of work with students around here as well, and we feel the same way. You just see that next generation, and it's why it's so important, to your point, that we do speak with them and share with them. I love to hear that you're doing that. 
at the Jude 3 project as well. Um, George Saylor has a question. Uh, why is it so hard for white Christians in America to speak out against police brutality or voter suppression? I know this is a tough question. To <laughs> Any ideas, and, and I know that there is division in the church over these issues, and, and not speaking out a lot of times does create hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any Great thoughts? Question. Great question, George. I think one of the, the biggest reasons is when people haven't had those experiences, they tend to not validate the experiences for others. So they're like, no, nah, that's not happening. Um, when I, when I got pulled over by the police, they were kind to me. Um, and so they let their experiences cloud the experiences of African-Americans. And so that's why I think listening is so important and understanding the history is so important. And so most people let their experiences be the guiding force for truth in their life. And experience is not always normative truth. And so I think that's, the challenge for culture across the board, because then it's like my experience becomes the guiding force in my life for everybody else's experience. And I think that's a very ignorant stance to take. I think the better stance to take is to listen to the experiences of others and not let your experience be the only experience that you let guide your decision making. The Bible talks about a multitude of, of having counsel when making decisions um, and having counsel when understanding things. And I think one of the ways our white brothers and sisters will be helped is if they listen to the experiences of others. They understand history, because if not, the the narrative is going to be the same. That is like, I don't understand that because it's not my experience. And I, so I think that's the, the reason is because it's not their own experience. So they don't often validate the experience of others. Well, Lisa, it's been so wonderful to have you with us. Let me see if anybody else has any other questions. But in the meantime, um, well, here, let's see, Lorena does have a question. How do you navigate being a Christian or bringing people into the faith when there's so many quote unquote bad Christians who don't behave Christ-like? I, I feel that many people shy away from Christianity because of the stigma of some hostile evangelicals, for example. And you and I talked about this when we were talking before this, just about even the current political climate right now in the US makes it really difficult for these types of conversations and this relational tension Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I think one of the things is that we have to. It goes back to listening again, but listening to the bad experiences that people have had, and then letting them get out their frustration, and then validating those experiences as being problematic um, if they are indeed problematic. Like saying, "Yes, that was wrong. They shouldn't have behaved that way," and also point them to scripture and show like what God requires, um, God's standard, how he um, instructs Christians to behave and, and then show the disconnect there and say, hey, this person behaves this way, but that's not, that doesn't represent Christianity. And so I think that's the most challenging thing because when you experience a Christian in, in many in minds, they start to, to confuse that with God's character. And so a Christian may have bad character, uh, but that's not God's character. And so there's this meme um, where a person is talking to 
their their therapist and all the uh, wires are crossed up. But as they're talking through it, uh, the therapist is able to detangle the wires for them. And so I think as Christians um, that are are kind of having discussions with people who have had bad experience with Christians, one of the ways is that we untangle the wires for people is to allow them to get out their frustration about their experiences and then, you know, validate those experiences, as I said, as being wrong, but then also giving them God's character through his word. Mm-hmm. So Lisa, for people who want to um, get involved, actually, okay, one other question. Sorry. Okay. Are you hopeful that younger generations will come back to the church over time? Will they see that religion is a rare place in society where understanding reform and forgiveness may be most possible? Yeah, I'm definitely hopeful. Um, I, I think there's going to be a great awakening um, of young people who are, because people are hungry for truth. And people are hungry for justice. And I always tell younger people that you can't have justice without truth. You have to have something to undergird um, your passion for justice. And it has to be an absolute truth or uh, you won't be able to seek justice because uh, they'll be like a judge's situation where everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. And I think as people seek justice, they begin to seek truth. And I think their pursuit of truth leads them to the truth of Christ. Um, And so I've seen that trajectory for many people and I I just believe that. And uh, maybe it's not even tail my part, but I'm so hopeful um, that that this will lead to uh, a great revival amongst young people. That's fantastic. Um, Lisa, for people who want to get involved and, and to follow what the work that you're doing with the Jew3 project, they can go onto your website. Is that right? Jew3? Yeah, Jew3project.org. Um, all the links are on there. Um, and our social media links, our podcast, all of that are, are available on there as well. Well, we so appreciate you being a part of this conversation with us today. It's great. And we really loved having Dr. Bantu and Dr. Daniels as well. It was wonderful. To, it was perfect progression to hear from them historically and then to really hear kind of how this is playing out today. And just to give us all insight um, as journalists and just as people of faith to be able to understand how to navigate during this challenging time. So thank you, Lisa, for your time. Thank and for having me. It's been a joy. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Melissa Tamplin Harrison, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.